In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The Feast of St. Matthew, Apostle and Evangelist, was last Thursday, September 21st, but our annual custom is to transfer the Feast of St. Matthew, our patron saint, to the following Sunday and hold our annual meeting on that day. A central theme of the feast is freedom from the love of money and from covetousness. Matthew left a lucrative tax business to follow Jesus. Our statue of St. Matthew shows the, the coins of income from his former employment on the ground, and Matthew has taken up his pen to write his gospel. In the colic, we pray to follow his example, saying, Grant us grace to forsake all covetousness and inordinate love of riches and to follow the same, thy son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This continues the theme of last Sunday's gospel, where Jesus exhorted us with words taken from Matthew's gospel, saying, No one can serve two masters, for highly we will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The example of Matthew and the words of Jesus present a clear choice. Follow Jesus and leave mammon behind. However, mammon is a constant temptation. We must repeat the example of Matthew a thousand times. Our lives are different from St. Matthew's example in that we don't usually leave our job to follow Jesus. We strive to live in a new way while doing essentially the same work. What changes? One starting point is the spiritual discipline of tithing, which changes our relationship with our money. We do the same work and receive the same pay but when we receive our income, we offer the first and best back to God. The tithe is the first part that represents the whole. By giving God the first and best, we say to God, this is all yours. And this brings our finances out of the world and into the kingdom. And it cultivates detachment from our money and freedom from the love of money. But this is just the beginning of the battle. The tithe leads us into the practice of generosity. Generosity is a general disposition by which we are free to share with others what God has given to us. We aren't possessive and territorial about what is mine. Generosity is not solely monetary. It is a reasonable reorientation of our lives towards seeking the good of those around us, towards loving our neighbor as ourselves. I say a reasonable reorientation. Generosity does not mean that we empty our wallet for every manipulator who asks us for money, or that we meet every demand made on our time by perpetually needy people. Jesus exhorts us to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Generosity is not naivete or stupidity. 
It is an open heart with discernment. The main concern is what kind of giving actually promotes the good of the person we are giving to. A difficult no is sometimes more truly generous and loving than an anxious and people-pleasing yes. Personality type and temperament apply here. Some people are naturally stingy. For them, the cultivation of generosity requires a freer practice of the yes. Others will naturally give away the store. For them, the cultivation of generosity requires practicing the wise no. But there is a more ubiquitous challenge. Our culture is oriented towards serving mammon. And this is revealed in the 24-7 economy that idolizes continuous productivity at the expense of love for God and neighbor. Most people who routinely forsake the gathering of ourselves together on the Lord's Day are making an economic decision to do something more efficient or attractive with their time. This is why the commitment to reorient our lives around the church's patterns of worship and prayer is the first defense against service to mammon. Once we allow our time to be dictated by mammon, we've already chosen whom we will serve. Our economic orientation is revealed by how we evaluate life in economic terms. The stock market is up, household income is up, so we should all be really happy, right? Or stocks have tanked and income is down, so we should all be miserable, right? But is it really true that our sense of well-being meaning and purpose is dependent upon our current economic net worth and not the quality of our relationships with God and other people. Another example is shopping. It is commonly thought that we should buy the least expensive version of everything. But what if the cheaper version was produced in a sweatshop and the more expensive version was produced by a devoted craftsman. Even moral outrage in our culture is influenced by money. Protests are deemed to be successful when they have a monetary impact, but someone else usually benefits from the outrage, most likely the person who started the protest. Few of us are able to work for companies whose mission is to seek first the kingdom of God. Living as a Christian in the world always involves swimming against the tide. <clears throat> However, even when an organization's stated goal is to serve God and others, the members of the organization must still wrestle with temptation. Many Christian organizations are overcome by greed. And ask a monk whether joining the monastery freed him from all temptation to covetousness. Wherever we go, there we are, and the spiritual battle is with us. The answer is not cynicism, which is its own temptation. 
The ubiquity of service to mammon should not surprise us. The Bible presents the Christian life as a battle in the spirit against the spiritual forces, the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. See Jesus in the wilderness, which is the sort of paradigm story for the Christian life. Cynicism is born of a faulty worldview that sees humans as basically good and is first shocked and then disillusioned when they constantly prove otherwise. What guards us against cynicism is our vision of God, to have faith in God, to know God is to know the good. To know the good is to be infected by it. Our progress in the life of prayer can be understood as acquiring more of the character of God as we put off more and more of the what St. Paul calls the old Adam. And the result of this is a growing freedom from the service of mammon. Because we know God, we are witnesses for Christ in the world. See Isaiah 43, 10 through 12 and Acts 1, 8. The word witness in our English New Testaments translates the Greek word martyr. Martyrs are the ultimate witnesses because they refused to submit their lives to the world's economic analysis at the cost of their lives. In daily life, faithful witness focuses on the good itself and not the result we hope to gain. This means focusing on doing good work and not on the income we hope to receive from the work. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, these words are simple, and we've heard them a thousand times. Why are they so hard to put into practice? We resist the contentment that comes from serving God because we listen to the voice of the world that tells us we need something more. In God, we always find a certain sense of peace and contentment in the moment. In the world, we always find what we don't have and are always led to want more. This is why contentment and the related virtue of gratitude are the main weapons against the temptation to serve mammon. This means learning to be content with what we have and also learning to be content with what God is doing in our lives in the midst of our current struggle, even when we don't fully understand what God is doing. As St. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these we shall be content. Thus, on the Feast of St. Matthew, we pray, grant us grace to forsake all covetousness and inordinate love of riches and to follow the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.